before, but it was quite a long time ago, and it's exciting to me to see what God's doing here and to be uh, in your midst, to be here with you, and to see God at work here, to see on that wall the nations, the flags of the nations and the, the workers that you've sent. And I want to say thank you for two workers who are in Pioneers, the Richardsons, and then uh, Jeremiah and Jessica are in Bosnia, and we were just with both of those couples not long ago at a conference and enjoyed the time we got to be with God's using them, even though it's a long and arduous journey there. And so thank you for your involvement already in the kingdom of God and the expanding of the kingdom of God. As David said, my wife and I have been in pioneers and uh, living cross-culturally for the past 30 or so years, and we are so grateful to God for the privilege of, of being involved in that, in his kingdom in that way. It's fun, too, to see some dear friends who are here today and to be re reconnected together. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we look to you now to open your word to our hearts. And Lord, maybe simply to remind us of some things that we already know. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, move powerfully in our midst today? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you have noticed that the world is a little bit broken. Can you see it? Andrew Peterson, in his beautiful song, Is He Worthy?, asked, do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? Is all creation groaning? And we don't have to look very far. Maybe we only have to look in the mirror. But certainly, our roommates, our families, our workmates, our community, we can see the brokenness. We can see and even hear, just now, even in Bentley's testimony about the impact of depression and the pandemic of anxiety that's not just here in the U.S., but around the globe, to see the impact of a, of a physical pandemic, of what COVID has done, and, 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 and to see the, the, the fear that's pervasive in societies. We were just in Thailand last week, and one of our friends who lives there was just um, lamenting the fact that the mother of one of her friends here now, three years in, is still unwilling to leave her home and uh, incapable of entering back into life. And there are other pandemics going on as well, besides the physical pandemics, pandemics of anxious thoughts and mental health issues. Suicide rates are up around the world. We don't want to dwell on all these things, but we see them around us. There are economic woes. On top of all this, we know that of the 8 billion people in the world, there are probably still 2 billion of them. I don't even know what two billion means. Two billion of them who don't have easy access to knowing that the God of the universe sent his son to rescue them from their sin and shame. There are 3,000 or perhaps more whole ethnicities, people groups, who as yet don't have a known church presence. That's the world we live in in 2023, and it can be a little bit disconcerting. If we stop even for a moment and look around us, it's easy. It's easy to feel a deep, deep longing in our hearts to see all things made new. 
there's this longing in my heart with each passing day to see that moment when Jesus comes again to restore and to call his children home. On the plane back from Thailand last week, I unwisely probably watched a movie, a Hugh Jackman movie. I like Hugh Jackman. Reasonably good American accent. And he... He, the movie's called The Son, and uh, it's a very pained, spoiler alert, it's a story of his son who endured broken home and, and shame and uh, anxiety, severe depression and mental health, and joined the ranks of those who choose to not continue to live. And it left me feeling somewhat hopeless, and it felt, it, it felt like it was illustrative of much of what I see in the world around me. But I am thankful that that's not the end of the story. And that's partly why we're having a missions emphasis week here at Living Hope and why the Church of Jesus Christ continues to lift our eyes and to look around and see how can we bring the good news of hope and healing to such a broken world. I praise God too, and I'm thankful today that your pastor, David, invited me to speak on the topic of sending because the God of the universe is a God who is sending his people. First, he sent his own son, but he's sending his own people into a lost and dying world in order to bring the good news of salvation. And I believe it's an extremely relevant topic in the light of the realities around us. It's clear through Scripture that it, God is ascending God. You can see it all the way from beginning to end, but it's most poignantly described in the 25 most important words in all of history, according to Billy Graham. For God so loved the world that he gave or sent his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In that beautiful first verse that we all memorized is the heart of God, to send his own son through to do the redeeming work that God has been planning to do even from before the creation. Because of that great love, because of his great love, God's been redeeming all who will believe from the hopelessness and pain and brokenness that resulted from the fall. Throughout history, God has been sending people and he's sending us as well. He sent prophets. He sent deliverers. In the New Testament, Jesus sent 12 and Jesus sent 70. And at the end of his life, he said, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. And we then as well are sent by God to participate miraculously. And it's a miracle of God's grace and his design that we, frail human vessels, are invited into God's redeeming work and are sent by him to bring light and hope and real life to a lost and dying world. How can this truly be? Here and around the globe, God is sending us. And this morning, I would like to look at one passage that God, I believe, put on my heart that reveals this sending heart of God. And maybe we can discover some things there that will help us here in the Living Hope Church family and in our own lives to discover what God wants to do to send us. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, a very familiar passage, I'm sure. Either turn or swipe to Isaiah chapter 6. And I'd like to take uh, a few minutes just to make a couple brief observations from this beautiful passage. 
this beautiful, beautiful passage in Isaiah of Isaiah's encounter with the living God. And I know that probably most of what I share with you will be things you've already heard, but I think they're things we're uh, helped by reminding ourselves of. Just make a couple observations from this passage. First, we're going to look at the God who is ascending God, and then we're going to look at those whom he sends through the lens of Isaiah's being sent, and then we're going to look at the commission that God gave to Isaiah. So let me read. This is from the ESV. I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And now we hear from Isaiah. And I said, oh, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice, verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, and he says this to us, living hope, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Wow. What a complicated message that God had for Isaiah. What a complicated commission it was. But we'll come back to that in a few minutes. What I think we see and what I discern as I read and study Isaiah chapter 6 is an incredibly beautiful encounter that Isaiah the prophet had with the God of the universe. And in that encounter, once again, as we see through all scripture, we see the heart of the triune God to send out a human messenger to his people as a participant in God's redemptive work. Who will we send, God says. I love that there's a, triunit, a, a, a trinity reference here. Who will go for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. And I wonder this morning, are we ready with Isaiah to say, here am I, send me. Whatever it is, God, send me. The context here is the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah uh, was the 10th of 20 kings, right in the middle of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. After Solomon, Israel split into two kingdoms, and there were multiplicity of kings, good and bad. And Uzziah was a reasonably good king. There were maybe two good kings before 
before Uzziah. Jehoshaphat was one. I can't remember the other one. But after him, there was Hezekiah and Josiah. There were probably about 140, 150 years of the kingdom before Uzziah and about 150 uh, years afterwards. It was just right in the middle of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of his reign. He was a good king. He built Israel, expanded it, protected God's people, though he did grow prideful. Prideful at the end of his life. And, and that comes into play in this story as well. And here, in the middle of this moment, in a moment where one of the better kings, dead center of the life of the kingdom of God and the people of God, God invites, somehow draws Isaiah into the very throne room of God. <clears throat> Are you, like me, a little bit envious that Isaiah got to see what he saw? I'm also a little nervous about it because Isaiah was undone by what he saw. But I'm also envious of this idea that God I don't think it's just a metaphor. I think it's an actual experience that Isaiah had to be invited into the very throne room of God and to see those seraphim and to see God himself and to hear the voice of God and to be called personally by God. And I love this and I think there's some beautiful things that we can learn here. As I said, just a few things. One, who is this God who sends? Two, who are these ones he sends? And third, what is he sending us to do? So first, let's take a glimpse of the God who's revealed here because this seems to be the center of the whole scene is the God who is doing the sending, the God who is inviting Isaiah to be sent. And it's uh, a beautiful thing. It's actually a powerful contrast, though, when you see that Isaiah describes it as the year that King Uzziah died, 52 years of stability. I don't know how often that happens in history where a nation has 52 years of pure stability. And right in that, right at the end of that, Uzziah dies, as all kings die. And contrasting with that, Isaiah is taken into the throne room of the God who lives forever. The living God. Do we sometimes forget that God's a living God, that he's here in this room? The God of the universe, Yahweh, by his promise and by his word, is here with us now. He's living in us. His spirit is in each of us. And I think it's easy to forget that reality. We, we just get busy with life and we drive around and we buy stuff and we study and we work. But the living God is here. And the God who is who has been alive since before eternity, pre-existent for all of eternity, living for all of eternity. If you look into the book of Revelation, some 800 years later, John has a vision of the same throne room, and it's the same living God. And that is a picture of what's going to happen even further into the future than John could have imagined. And not only is God the Father there, but we see the one who's looking as a lamb who was slain alive. Again, the son Jesus Christ himself, victor, victorious over death. He conquered. The lamb has conquered. And we see that there, he's a living God. It's not just that God is the author and sustainer of all life. It's that he's living in us. And he's made us alive. We're a new creation in Christ. And we have real life inside us. And we live every single day 
with the reality that the life, the eternal life that God has granted to us is pulsing in our bones. Nietzsche said God is dead, but Nietzsche's dead and God's alive. We have life in us because God is alive. It's easy to forget that he's a living God, and that's the God who revealed himself as he was commissioning Isaiah into his mission. And I think it's helpful for us because no matter what circumstances we face, we can sing with the saints of years past, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And we can also say that in this broken and dying world, we know and are sent out by a living God who offers abundant life, eternal life to all through his son, Jesus Christ. That's part of what God is sending us to. And it's the living God. Secondly, the God who's revealed here is a God who's reigning on his throne. I love that Isaiah is taken into a throne room. And I, I, I don't think I've ever been in any kind of like center of power, but can you imagine that you would be in the very room where God is seated on a throne? He sees him there and sees the same, John sees the same Im image in Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 7. Precisely the same imagery and the same songs are being sung. And, and some additional songs as well. And when Jesus returns, I love this, he's got written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God was reigning and ruling when his people were under slavery in Israel. He was reigning and ruling when Stalin killed millions of Cossacks in the Second World War. He's reigning and ruling today when you don't know how you're going to pay your bills. He's reigning and ruling even when one of our precious children says, oh, I'm transitioning. Mom and dad, I don't believe anymore. How can, we how can we perceive, how can we endure the challenges and the difficulties and the darkness of our darkest hours unless we're confident in a God who is absolutely sovereign? Can we see his sovereignty in our darkest hours? Isaiah knew that dark hours were ahead for the people of Israel. In the previous chapter, chapter 5, God told him this, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard, his people Israel, who had rebelled and rejected him. He said, I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. And we can see people being devoured around us. We can see the desperate need for the hand of God to reach in and rescue and heal. Because of their rebellion, God's cherished vineyard would go into terrible exile. And it was right then and there when just prior to when Nebuchadnezzar, only a few years before the Assyrians, and then Nebuchadnezzar came to bring the other kingdom into exile and to begin attacking Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. And Isaiah knew that. And so God gave to Isaiah this most beautiful picture. This, not even a picture, he invited him in and said, can you see what's really real? Can you see what's true here, even in the face of what you know is coming? How about in our lives? The consequences of both our own and other people's sin brings darkness and pain and shadows and very, very deep grief to us. And it's in those moments where it's natural to say, God, are you sovereign? Are you reigning and ruling? But that's precisely when we most need to have the vision of him seated on a throne as the king of all kings and lord of all lords. My brother, 
died young of cancer, and as he was dying, it took him about five years. And throughout that five years, because he was so concerned about his precious wife and his four precious daughters, uh, he would sing to himself and listen to Michael W. Smith's song, uh, You Are Sovereign Over Us, over and over and over, simply to remind himself that God was sovereign enough to take care of his daughters and his wife even after he was gone. And there are many, many other examples of this where even in those dark hours, it's there precisely where we need to see that our God is a God who reigns. So he's a God who's alive and he's a God who reigns, but he's also a holy, holy, holy God. The only characteristic of God that's repeated in triplicate, a Hebrew and also a, a, a Greek mechanism for emphasis that this is the God who is holy. And sometimes I think holiness can seem a bit kind of like a frightening word or maybe even like, oh man, that's so unattainable. I know myself. I can't do that. And yet it's a very reassuring thing to me to know that Isaiah saw the God who is revealed in the beauty of his perfect holiness, wholly pure, wholly set apart, separate by definition from anything less than absolute rightness and purity and justice. And it fills my heart with a deep sense of peace to know that God's not the author of the evil things happening. Yes, those things are under his sovereign hand, but he's not the one who has generated all things that he does are perfect in holiness. And to see God's holiness is, seems to be the almost inevitable reaction of anybody who encounters God. Whether it's John, whether it's Joshua on the road, whether it's Moses, whether it's Isaiah, or whether it's even Peter. Remember when Peter, they had the miraculous catch of fish. And he could not, he just couldn't figure it out. But he knew something about Jesus' holiness. Because he jumped out of the boat and he knelt on the ground and he said, Go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. So we see God, the one who sends, is a living God, a reigning God. He's a holy God, but he's also here revealed as the God to be praised and worshipped and adored. He's worthy. We just sang Jesus is worthy. He is worthy. And essentially that's the core component of God's revelation of himself, that he's the one who is worthy of all praise. He's worthy of every tongue, tribe, and nation. He's revealed in his temple, and the train of his robe fills the temple. Historically, kings would wear long robes with a long train, and the concept, the concept was then and is even now that the one wearing the long train is where all the eyes should be, the one who should be the center of all attention. If you think, uh, the only like, train thing that I know about is at weddings, and the bride wears it. And sometimes it's long, sometimes it's short, but isn't it true? A whole wedding is set up with like there's an aisle and like, and then the music, a certain kind of music starts and everybody stands and we all turn because the one who's wearing that train is, is where all eyes should be on that bride. And in, in this scene, you see God worthy of all worship, all attention and all focus. And then there are these living creatures, these seraphim. Can I just say, those are not little medieval painting cherubs with a little bow and arrow like this. They're not like elderly visitors 
who show up and do kind things for, for people who are in a time of need, although maybe there are angels doing that. These are literally translated fiery ones. The same word is used elsewhere in Isaiah and translated dragons or serpents. These are extremely powerful beings and they're created by God to do his bidding and they want all attention to him. So they cover their faces and their feet so that all glory goes to God and God alone. He's the center of it all. It's his worthiness that's the centerpiece of him sending Isaiah. These creatures, when they speak, they're so powerful that the thresholds of the temple begin to tremble. I'm guessing that's a well-built temple up in heaven. And yet their voices are such that it trembles the whole place and the place fills with smoke. How much more so then should we be those who when we encounter God at any place, at any time in his word, in his body, in worship, that we ourselves are lifted up in adoration and praise of him. If you look at the other throne room scenes in, in Revelation, you'll see it's not just those seraphim. There's also martyrs who are there. And there are the 24 elders. I'm not sure who they are, but they're all bowing down in worship. And then you have what's called myriads of myriads of angels in worship. That's not like a number. It's like lots of angels, but it's not lots. It's lots of lots of angels. It's like an uncountable amount of angels. They're all in worship. And then it says multitudes from every tongue, tribe, and nation, all in worship and martyrs. And then every living creature on heaven and earth, all in worship. The whole thing, every time, is about worshiping the one who's worthy. That's why we go. That's the birthplace for sending. There's more revealed about God. He sees all. He knows all. He listens. He reveals himself. This passage is full of, 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 of rich treasure about who God is, the God who sends. But I think what's so beautiful and powerful here is that as we discover and encounter the living, reigning, holy, rightly adored God, that becomes the starting point for him sending us to participate in his redeeming work. It's born there. It was for Isaiah and it is for us. To know God personally and intimately, not just to know about him, to actually encounter him, to actually experience him. And I experienced him in the worship this morning. I sensed God's heart here in this church. And I sensed his nearness to me. I know it's just somewhat subjective, but you can know God, not just about him. And as we come to know him personally, intimately, it's the incubator for God's commissioning. To see him, to encounter him, is to love him and worship him. And that's the place from which we are sent. Do you remember Peter and John, after spending all those years, or three or so years with Jesus, they were wandering around Jerusalem doing stuff, and everybody just said, oh, I, they were with Jesus. They were so captivated by him that everything they did pointed back to the things they had seen and heard, and people knew it. Or Moses, who was in the tent of meeting in Exodus chapter 33, and he would go in there and meet with God and talk with him as a man talks with his friend. 
And he came out shining. He was shining. He put a veil over his face because he shone with the glory of God. Would it be miraculous? Imagine the impact if we, as the family of God here in Athens, in Clark County, in Oconee County, if our faces were radiant because of the time we've spent in adoration and exaltation and praise of the God who's worthy. How would it change the campus? How would it change our lives? How would it impact this community? And so, if nothing else comes out of this time together, I'm going to give you a small challenge. I call it the adoration challenge. You can, don't forget everything else I say, but this is what I'm going to ask you to think about. I'm going to ask you to consider, I'm not, I don't do TikTok at all, and I'm not an influencer, but I, I see all these challenges. I don't know, something, of, they're all kind of challenges, but here's one for you. I call it the adoration challenge. Just try it for a week. Right before you go to bed, shut off everything, Netflix and, and, uh, and, and, and cable, anything distracting. You're still going to need maybe your phone or your computer, but I just want you to consider spending your last 15 minutes awake personally adoring God in heaven. Let the truth about who he is wash over you and over you. Pick a genre of music that you love or write your own song or read a responsive reading or get the Psalms in front of you. But I'm especially thinking about the vast wealth of worship music that's available. I don't just mean popular Christian music. I mean songs that are designed to extol and adore God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Figure out how to do that and don't do anything else and go to bed after that. I promise you it will change your heart. The day will look different. And sometimes if you're like me, you get so caught up in who God is that one o'clock in the morning you still can't shut it off. So don't stay up too late and miss your classes. But, but that's my adoration challenge for you. Could it be that we could come to know God through adoration? There's many ways to know God, through his word, through his creation, through this body of Christ and the opening of his word and through fellowship with one another. But one of the neglected ways that I have seen in many lives is this thing of adoration. You know, every look into the throne room, there's worship. I don't mean worship in like all of life worship. I mean adoration and exaltation. And that's the inevitable response when people see God. And so why don't we do this? Why don't we join into that adoration? And I think we're going to see God. We're going to see him for who he is. It will change the way we are sent out. Okay, so that's my challenge for you. And the only thing we've covered now is the God who sends. But let me take a minute. And I want to just talk about who it is, who it is that God is sending. No, before I do that, I've got to tell you a story because this, I hope, will stick with you too. We have a very good colleague who's in Pioneers, and he serves in Jordan. I just talked to somebody who was in Jordan. And he'd been living there a while, fluent in Arabic, and he had a really, he had a lot of local friends, and one of his local friends would come over, they'd go to each other's houses, and he was sitting there one day, and all the time when they were together, they were trying to convert each other. The, his, his, his Jordanian friend was trying to convert him to Islam. He was seeking to present the gospel. And they had been, he was, his friend was at uh, my colleague's home one uh, afternoon and they had been talking and they were kind of relaxing a little. I think some of the kids came home. And so the, 
the Jordanian friend was sitting and kind of looking at his phone. And my colleague said, can I just, do you mind if I'm just going to play a few songs? And he wasn't playing them for anyone. He just picked up his guitar and started singing a few worship songs. And he got caught up in his worship songs. And he played a few songs. I don't know what he was singing. Maybe he was playing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It's well, it's well with my soul. Maybe that, maybe some other thing. But when he put his guitar down and he looked over, his Jordanian friend had tears streaming down his face. And he said, whoever you are singing to, I want to know that God. Wow. Wow. God's waiting to show himself to the world. And oddly enough, he wants to use us. He wants to reveal his character. And he wants to show who he is. All right, those whom God sends. The first thing I notice here is that Isaiah immediately knew, I'm a sinner. It's not really popular to talk about being a sinner. It's much more popular now to think about um, other things. But I'm going to say this, that Paul encouraged us to remember where it was we have come from. And it's helpful for us. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he said, I know two th- I remember two things. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. But he also said this. He said, the more I realize how vile my heart is, the more precious my savior becomes to me. And isn't it true? Isn't it true? It's a beautiful thing, actually, to become aware daily of my need for a savior, to recognize, woe is me. I am a sinner. Even now, I see the struggle of my own heart. I know that God holds me in his hand. There's no question about eternal salvation. But each day, I still need my Savior. And I still know that I need him. And part of recognizing, part of recognizing that is realizing and seeing that my heart is still filled with darkness. The wonder and beauty of the saving, cleansing work of the cross is only truly perceived against the backdrop of our own spiritual destitution outside of Christ. You can't appreciate the sunrise until you endured the midnight. And I think that's what's so beautiful about how God sends us. He's sending us as those who were lost and broken without him, and only through him are we rescued. It also helps us to see every single person we meet through God's eyes. The distracted cashier who desperately needs Jesus. The uncooperative... Does anyone work at motor vehicles? Sorry, I won't use that illustration. Um, The panhandler at the intersection. That The recognition of our neediness gives us God's view of each and every human soul that we meet. Someone so loved by him that he would send his son designed from before eternity began to rescue, and that he's sending us as well. He's sending us as well. Secondly, those who are sent, not only are we uh, aware of our need for a Savior, but we're also cleansed by God. What a beautiful picture that this great seraph took a coal and touched Isaiah's lips. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And God specifically met that place of shame and guilt in Isaiah's life. And he said, no, you are not. You're now clean. Illustrative of, predictive of what Jesus Christ has done for us with his, through his shed blood to take our sins and bear that penalty in his own body 
through the shedding of his blood and to say to us, you are clean because of my finished work. And, and I love the fact that we carry that message. Do we preach this gospel to ourselves each and every day? Maybe that's the kind of song that you can look for in the Adoration Challenge, something that remembers the finished work of Jesus to bring us healing and cleansing. God accomplishes forgiveness full and free, and sin no longer has power over us. And we carry that message to a lost and dying world. And those whom God sends are not only aware of our need for a Savior and cleansed, but we're also pretty ordinary people, willing and available. Maybe that's what I can actually draw out of Isaiah is the willing and available part because Isaiah at the beginning didn't know what God was asking, right? God just said, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah's like, me, I'll go. He didn't even know whether it was a hard task, whether it was a simple task, where it would take him. He just knew this, I will be the one, send me. And I, I think that's what God's looking for. It's unimaginable sometimes to me that God would invite me, someone so broken, with a heart full of pride and with tendency to goof off at times and, and a self-life that still needs, needs crucifying and invite me into his redemptive work. And, and yet God is so masterful that he can use the foolish and the weak and the despised things to display his glory and to do his redeeming work. Gideon was hiding, and God said, mighty warrior, and he used Gideon to, to, to defeat a huge army. It's amazing. It's a stunning thing. Moses was a murderer, murderous guy living in the desert. God said, you're going to be my mouthpiece. Esther. Esther got sent to a beauty pageant to be queen uh, of King Xerxes so that she could save God's entire kingdom. It's absolutely astonishing. God uses each and every person who's willing and available. We have friends who uh, are in their late 60s, and you know probably that it's very difficult to get into North Korea. It's very difficult to do ministry in North Korea. And yet, because they had a manufacturing background, many years ago they started a shoe factory, and they were selling shoes in China. And they set up the factory and built housing for the staff, and with the sanctions that came, all of that got cut, cut off. They couldn't sell anymore, so they worked with local authorities, and they realized that in the frigid cold of North Korea, most of the families are impoverished, and the children don't have warm, safe shoes. And so they decided that's what they're going to do. And they have a network of distribution around North Korea of warm, safe children's shoes. And in their factory facility, they're allowed to worship, and people are coming to Christ. God uses manufacturing skills. He can use whatever he wants. I, oh, the things that God is doing, the children's school, it's almost impossible to reach the Roma. They're the gypsies in almost every central and eastern European city, mostly unemployed, severe, um, severe rates of uh, spousal abuse, and, 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 and it's almost every imaginable social, social problem, almost an unemployable population. And for years, people were working there until there was a realization that a little preschool and a kindergarten could pull those children out of that cycle and that they begin to meet the living God right there. And God is using people who simply have a passion to care for children. He's using so many different things in so many different ways. Social, phone apps, tech technicians. What's holding us back? 
God is sending us. He's sending us as those who are weak and broken ourselves. But he's, he's doing it through his power to bring his message of reconciliation. And now there's a beautiful commission. God tells Isaiah, go and tell. And it wasn't an easy thing that he was to tell. And yet you can see just a few chapters later that Isaiah's ultimate message was exactly the same as Jesus gave to his disciples. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, uh, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Isaiah's message was the rescuing, salvific work of the God in heaven. Jesus expanded on that in Acts 1.8, and he clarified it again, and he said, you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, UGA, Oconee County. Are we in Oconee County? No, Clark County. Oglethorpe County, wherever it is we are right now. Whatever our marketplace is, that God wants us to be his witnesses there. The commission is precisely the same, that the truth of who God is and what he's done needs to be heard by those whose lives are broken. Our conversations will become even more impactful as we come to know him more and love him more. Yes, there are still 3,000 people groups in the world, and it's possible, it's possible that today God is calling someone in this room to be part of his expansive kingdom work, to be those who are sent ones out to a further place. Perhaps the most beautiful, beautiful description of God's commission for those of us who are sent out by that living, reigning, holy, worthy of worship God is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul describes himself and all who are in Christ as ambassadors for Christ. Under the name and authority of the one who sent us, God making his appeal through us. He's entrusted to us a message of reconciliation. Is that not extraordinary? So to recognize and embrace the love of God that sought us out, to come to know him in a way that we can't stop talking about him, will fill our hearts with what's needed to be sent to those who are lost and needy in this broken world. One last thing, and I'll share this with all of us, but it may be just for a few of us in the room. It's possible that some of us who are sitting in here, God might be whispering something in your hearts that goes beyond just what the ordinary is. If you look in Acts chapter 13, we read this. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Niger Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so out of all of those in the church that were already in ministry, Paul, Saul, Paul had already had his calling to preach in chapter 9 of Acts, but God said, there's something special that I'm asking. You are apostolos sent out ones. Someone in here, is God nudging your heart to be part of bringing the gospel into that 1040 window to the places of greatest need and least opportunity? Don't hold back. Let's, with Isaiah, say, here am I. Send me. We're going to sing a song now, and as we do, I'll I'll, um, I'd like to invite you right across the room, those of you who 
perhaps you'll sense God speaking to you about cross-cultural mission work. Maybe it's just a desire to learn or know more. But maybe it's just God who's working even now in your heart to call you. And you want to say, here am I, send me. Send me to the classroom that I'm in. Send me to the neighborhood I live in. Here am I, Lord, send me. I'm yours. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So now as we sing, I'll just invite uh, any who would like to come to come here and to pray or if you want to talk about missions further, Ellen, I'll, I'll be here a few minutes, or you can talk with your pastor about what those next steps might be. Thank you, Lord, that you, God of the universe, have somehow in your, in your wisdom, in your majesty, invited us to be participants in your great kingdom work. We thank you, and we invite you to come and fill our hearts afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Eric.